I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and this is our first show for 2018, and our old pal, Jared Scott London, is back. Hi, Jared. How are you, Rob? Good to be here. I'm doing great. I'm glad to have you back. We're happy that it's 2018. 2017 is in the memory uh, memory banks. Thank, thank goodness it's over. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, really. And uh, you brought a friend. Who did you bring with you? I brought my dear friend, Jeffrey Gold, uh, who uh, we explored Dylan together growing up, and he was going to come over for a jam session after uh, I finished recording this, and I figured why not have him join as well. Perfect. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you. This is exciting. This is the first time we've had three guests on the show. Well, not three guests. I'm not the guest. We have two guests simultaneously. Um, The song we're here to talk about is... You're going to make me lonesome when you go, which is the closing song of side one on Blood on the Tracks. This would be the fifth song from Blood on the Tracks that we've covered on the show so far because the album is just that good. And it's so hard to stay away from it, even when there's other other albums we haven't touched yet. Uh, but before we get to the song, uh, I want to ask you, Jeff, the same question I asked Jared when he did his first episode and the same question I ask everybody. How did you come to Bob Dylan? How did you become a fan? Well, I... Uh... That's actually a great question. I've probably been listening to Bob Dylan for longer than I can remember, literally. I think it was probably playing in my house when I was growing up as a kid. Um, but when I really got into Bob Dylan in earnest, I think it was just during that kind of early adolescent phase where you're really looking to sort of define yourself, your identity. And, you know, of course, music is a lot of the ways that is one of those ways we do that. And for me, uh, the lyricism of Bob Dylan and the kind of longing American spirit that was just inherent to all of his music is, I think, what just drew me in right away, and I've just been hooked ever since. How did you actually discover it? Because it's not like Bob Dylan is accessible on TV, or you know what I mean? Like, you have to kind of search it out, I think. Right, right. Well, I I got a nice little uh, computer in my bedroom at the time, (laughs) and I got right on the internet, and I said, how can I do this, let's say, uh, the, uh, the communist way? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and uh, get some good music into my brain and uh, made it happen. And since then, I've really, you know, hopped on the straight and narrow, and I now uh, do only legal methods to acquire. <laughs> good to know, good to know. Music. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was literally just, you know, searching online, kind of going through album by album. Um, I really fell in love with the early folk stuff, so it was almost like I traveled through Dylan's, uh, you know, albums chronologically i started with the early stuff and then got into the electric stuff and then sort of a little later on uh just kind of kept going through the list um and it was also the time i was learning to play guitar myself so these were songs that i you know basically used to teach myself how to you know do the basics of of uh rock guitar playing and stuff like that and folk music and now rob if you go back to my first episode you'll see that my story closely mirrors jeff's (laughs) uh because we, we, we were on this path together yeah, uh, and we did go chronologically, and you know we have one other friend that was on this journey with us. Mm-hmm. But it was great to sort of have this group mentality, and we kind of we went all in together. Yeah, uh, almost like a book club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through, 
Like, what'd you think of, uh, you know, other, another side of Bob Dylan? Yeah. yeah, that one part, you know. Yeah. Just have a community in a little, in a and you, way. you had that album on vinyl, actually. Yes, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. That was a big piece of it, too. I had, a, you know, an older cousin who gave me his old record player yeah. and, and, and some, you know, vinyl that he had. And that was one of the Dylan. He gave me another side of Bob Dylan, and he gave me Blood on the Tracks. And oh, so those boy. Two wow. albums, I... They just have like a special place for me. I kind of know all those songs front to back, so it's a a, a a great song for me to be commenting on, I guess, today. That's fantastic, yeah. I mean, uh, Jared has played guitar on the show before, and I said to him on the last show we did together, Po' Boy, like, I'm not musically inclined at all. At I don't know one note of music. I cannot sing. I cannot play. I cannot do anything. And I, I can't imagine how exciting it would have to be to be able to hear this material and then kind of be able to reproduce it yourself. And when Jared, live on our show, played the notes for a po' boy, I got so excited because it's like, oh, I'm hearing it over again. It seemed like magic. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, was, that was part of the excitement of growing up and doing it. I mean, you're dead on. Yeah. I mean, we still do it today, right? I mean, he came yeah. over for a jam session. We do this every weekend. <laughs> right. That's fantastic. That is, that's, I'm sure some, that is something Bob himself, I'm sure, would, would completely endorse uh, if he was listening to this. And we don't know that he <laughs> isn't. Right. Uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but you mentioned Blood on the Tracks, and he said that's the song we're here to talk about. It's You're Going to Make Me Lonesome When You Go. Uh, this is, uh, boy, this, this is one of my top ten favorite Bob Dylan songs of all time. Uh, I love its simplicity. I love where Dylan placed it on the record because it comes right after the eight and a half minute screed of Idiot Wind, which of course we covered just a couple episodes ago. And this is the first song on the album that you hear harmonica on. It comes in with a blast of harmonica and it is Dylan being uh, probably him and his most charming. Uh, It's just him singing this beautiful song to a woman uh, and it opens up with, he says, I've seen... I've seen love go by my door. It's never been this close before. Never been so easy or so slow. Been shooting in the dark too long. When something's not right, it's wrong. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. Dragon cloud so high above. I've only known careless love. It's always hit me from below. This time around, it's more correct. Right on target. So direct. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. And compared to what we've been hearing previously on the album, this song is him at kind of his most relaxed his most playful, he almost sounds sort of happy because, of course, you would surmise by listening to this, this is the person he is singing to is not the same woman he's been singing about in the previous other songs. This is someone else. And, you know, the the biographical background of this song is that uh, this song is about Ellen Bernstein, supposedly, a Columbia Music Record, a Columbia Records executive that he was having an affair with at the time. And he knew that this relationship, I guess, was going to end at some point, And he was sort of looking ahead to the future and knowing this thing was This is like a rebound relationship. And he knows it's a rebound relationship. And he's happy now, but he knows it's going to end. And so it has this wonderful que sera, sera kind of feel to it. And, you know, one could argue that the fact that he's singing about a woman he's having an affair with might give you some indication as why he's having problems with the other relationships that he's singing about on the record. Uh, but that's not necessarily for, for me to judge. But... Where, where, like, where do you guys feel fall on this song? I, I think it's just it's a masterpiece of simplicity. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's also one of the things I like about it is sort of the um, very direct nature of uh, the lyrics, the very like sort of direct nature of the melody itself. It just sort of pulls you right in immediately. Um, and to me, this is yeah. I, I think I, I agree with you on a lot of levels. This is a song about uh, attachment, but not in a sort of um, 
romantic sort of way. It's very uh, pragmatic and or somewhere in between romantic and pragmatic. Uh, uh, and I didn't know that biographical piece about this probably being about uh, uh, an affair. So that's, that's yeah. an interesting thing for me to just think about for a second. Um, was the affair after Bob and Sarah had broken up or was this during? Well, I think during because him and Sarah r- remained married for the next right. two years, and they they reconciled at some point. She joined him on the on the uh, Rolling Thunder review tour, and of course, he sings about her in on Desire. So this is kind of in the middle of their their back and forth. Yeah, and, and so and so she even confirms that it's about her because she mentions that she introduced Bob to the flower known as the Queen Anne lace, which she didn't know about. Oh, oh I and never not, heard that. Not only that, she uh, she mentioned to Bob that she was born in Honolulu, which I love that he pronounces Honolulu to yeah. <laughs> give the rhyme for Ashtabula. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. I love that rhyme. <laughs> Isn't that the best? Yeah. Take your poetic license and uh-huh. he just runs with it. Uh, and so she spent time in those three cities. So she, uh, she confirms all this. Um, and I think it is interesting that – like Jeff said, he's being pragmatic about this affair, but it doesn't mean that he's not going to be lonesome or upset when she leaves, right? And sometimes you know when something's going to end and you're going to enjoy it till the very last minute, uh, but you know it's it's probably not right. Mm. Uh, but you make the best of it. And they are, right? I mean, they're they're laying out in the fields. They're, they seem to be having a wonderful time. I mean, Dylan's imagery... Uh, that he's giving us here, you know, dragon clouds so high above. I mean, they seem to be having a blissful time together, which which is also confirmed is in Minnesota on his 50-acre farm, right? So uh-huh. also near where he grew up, um, which also brings up the other idea that, you know, as I'm sure you know, Rob and Jeff might know, he recorded the first, uh, fr- first few songs in New York. Right. And then his brother David uh, – Interestingly, said, you know, maybe you should cut some of these again. <laughs> even, even though, as many people agree, the New York versions uh, are far superior. Well, I've always wondered what he said. Like, what did he say to him? He's like, I don't know, maybe you need some drums in some of these. Yeah. Or That's some chutzpah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But, I mean, by the way, I mean, the, the versions from uh, Minnesota are fantastic, too. Yes. Um, yes. Both, both are, of course, great. Um, and then he, uh, he cut, uh, some of the new songs in Minnesota with some local musicians there. Right. Uh, so there really is like a lot of context that goes around this. Um, but, uh, you know, a, it, it, again, it, it's almost like a bittersweet song, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, considering that it comes after idiot wind, which is so angry and just so vituperative. And here he just sounds kind of like you guys said, he's just sort of. I like the idea of being halfway between pragmatic and romantic. I think that's probably exactly right. He's kind of like, you know, I'm enjoying this, but this isn't going to last. And, yeah, you were talking about the recording. This is one of the songs that uh, was not re-recorded in Minnesota. The, the, this the version that we hear on the record is one of the ones from New York. There is an alternate version that was cut in New York that was originally scheduled for the Bootleg Series release, Volumes 1 to 3, and then it was nixed at the last moment because originally that set was going to be four CDs, and then they cut it down to three. So a bunch of stuff had to get dropped, and the, the alternate version uh, of this song was the one that got, got cut. Um, but yeah, I mean, you said you mentioned the, the Queen's, Queen Anne's Lace. The, the amount of imagery... He gets into this, and the specificity of it is so wonderful. I mean, as he goes on, he says, purple clover, Queen Anne's lace, crimson hair across your face, which we know 
Alan Bernstein, not a redhead, and yet he mentions a redhead in Tangled Up in Blue, which kind of gives all these songs this sort of weird miasma of, are we talking about the same person? Are we not? It's, it, I love how it all blends together. And he says, you can make me cry if you don't know. Can't remember what I was thinking of. You might be spoiling me too much, love. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. Flowers on the hillside blooming crazy. Crickets talking back and forth in rhyme, which is extraordinary. Blue River running slow and lazy. I could stay with you forever and never realize the time. Situations have ended sad. Relationships have all been bad. Mine are like Verlaine's and Rambeau. But there's no way I can compare all them scenes to this affair. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. And then he ends it with, you're going to make me wonder what I'm doing. Staying far behind without you. You're going to make me wonder what I'm saying. You're going to make me give myself a good talking to. I look for new at old Honolulu, San Francisco, Ashtabula. You're going to have to leave me now, I know. But I'll see you in the sky above, in the tall grass, in the ones I love. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. And I love that you mentioned the Honolulu, Ashtabula line. I, I've never written a song, obviously. I guess you guys both have. I, I can't imagine the how great it feels when you come up with a really kind of like super clever rhyme scheme like that. I like I love the Honolulu, San Francisco, Ashtabule. Just the way that rolls off the tongue is so fun. When I sing this at, in the car by myself, that I love singing that part. It's just fun to say it. I mean, I think there's many parts of this song that are fun to sing. I mean, situations have ended sad, relationships have all been bad. Might have been like Berlin's and Rambeau. I mean, that the whole song has a wonderful rhythm and a cadence to it. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons why we love it. I also did a little research on Berlin and Rambeau. Sure. Um, so Rambeau was 18 and a poet, and he uh-huh. sent out letters to some of his, uh, you know, his favorite poets and writers in the area. The only guy that responded was uh was Verlaine and uh they ended up getting together uh Verlaine was married at the time with a baby uh and ended up not being a very good husband and beating mm. his and soon beating his child as well oh. and struck up a romantic relationship with Rambeau ah so now I always thought that Verlaine and Rambeau would be a boy and a girl it's mm. it's not but what happened was they ended up having a relationship which ended up being quite contentious and even ended with Verlaine shooting Rambo in the wrist. Uh, <laughs> right. So didn't end well, right? A uh, very shaky start, but it is what sort of uh, created Rambo's career uh, thereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so I think that points to exactly what, to me, this this song, the, the sort of emotional core of this song, which is really about comparing this particular relationship he's talking about to the more naive and passionate love he'd experienced before. And I guess, you know, biographically he's referencing his, his marriage and all the struggles there, but there's something much more worldly and uh, less naive about the way he views this relationship. And it comes through with, you know, these different lines about, um, you know, th- this time it's right on target. So direct as opposed to some, you know, hitting him elsewhere, let's say. Uh, and, uh, and, and sort of knowing there's like a knowing quality to you're going to make me lonesome when you go. Uh, that um, this is not like uh, the sort of uh, whatever it is, 19th century romance of Verlaine and Rambeau of this passionate, you know, relationship that ends in a gunshot. (laughs) This is me meeting another human being and connecting on a real emotional level with some real intimacy, but also understanding that that attachment inherently also comes with loss and it's probably coming soon and you're going to make me lonesome when you go. 
And to me, that's, that's you know, I think what you brought up earlier about the juxtaposition right after Idiot Wind, to me, this is, this is, that's why it's so perfect. It's like he has this, you know, passionate howl of a song, Idiot Wind, um, and then here he comes back to earth a little bit mm-hmm. with, um, yeah, this is what it's really like for sort of two people to be together and to, and to break up and to um, sort of have to be in the middle of that kind of romance and passion, but also be real about sort of being an adult in the world and understanding uh, how things really are going to go. Uh, and that's like the kind of tone I've always picked up from, from this song. That's like where I go, I guess, when I'm playing it myself, that's like where I'm at in my head. It's, it's like, you're not naively enamored with somebody. You're really into them, but you're also aware that there's kind of a bigger picture and you have a little perspective. You're like a, maybe a little bit older than you were in, uh, let's say some of those, you know, speakers from the earlier songs on the album. Yeah, there's definitely the feeling of the hard-won wisdom kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, he was, on this album, Dylan was really a master editor of his own work because, of course, most of the songs on uh, Blood on the Tracks are are long. Tangled Up in Blue is six minutes, and The Idiot Wind is eight minutes, and Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts is like nine minutes. This thing is like two and a half, 2.45. I mean, he knew exactly how long this should be. Like, it's just this little, almost like a ditty, that he's just rattling off for this woman and then he's going to move on and we're going to move on to side two of the record and stuff. And it's so it just, it, it's like after idiot wind, it just feels like a, like a drink of water, like a cool drink of water just to hear something so kind of low key and, and calm and playful. And I'd say Dylan, Dylan, when he wants to be playful can be incredibly charming and he really manages that here. And it's, it's funny. Um, I originally bought this album on cassette because that's how old I am, As I was buying things on cassette when they were first coming out. They had the CDs, but I was buying cassettes. And I guess because of uh, the, the, t- the amount of uh, material you can put on a side, uh, whoever put together the Blood on the Tracks cassette rearranges the songs. Yeah, uh, well, yeah uh, if you buy Blood on the Tracks on cassette, um, side one ends with Buckets of Rain, and the album ends with You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome with you When You Go. Uh, which really changes the tone of the album a lot. I mean, if I was Bob Dylan, I think I'd be like, you guys, you got to figure out a way to do this. I don't, you know, don't be changing my record. But so for, for the longest time between the time I got the cassette and when I got it on CD, I thought that that's how the record went. And then I heard it the other one. I went, Oh no, no, this is way better. Uh, you're, you're going to make me lonesome fits much better at the, as the end of side one, not the end of the album, because the end of the album needs to end with sort of him talking to, the main preoccupation of the record, not this sort of side thing that's going on. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, that's the stuff we had to put up with that on, on the set. Yeah. Yep. That could be illegal. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a major changing of the work, you know, to, to move around the songs and stuff. And oddly enough, this is a song that Dylan has not bothered with in concert very much. He has sung this all told 12 times in concert. Uh, from April 22nd, 1976 through May 25th, 1976, and that is it. He has never returned to it. The only evidence I can find that he ever even considered doing it in concert was according to Clinton Halen's book, uh, Bob Dylan, A Life in Stolen Moments. It was attempted at a sound check in 1989, but never performed in concert. So this is a song that he has just completely dropped, and maybe it's because it's about this one woman that he had this brief affair with and he feels like he doesn't have an, a, an emotional connection to it the way he did. But that's a shame because, uh, Jared, you sent me a live version that you can find on YouTube. 
I like a countryfied version, and it's terrific. It's great. Yeah. It sounds like it could have been off of Nashville skyline. Yes. In a way. It's kind of got that rocking piano to it, and it even changes up some of the chords, um, which I guess sort of leads us to um, leads us to one of the exciting things that we're able to bring to the show. And, and Jeff and I have been discussing the last few days. Um, so what's interesting about this album and why I definitely want to be able to discuss uh, one of the songs was majority of the album is done in an open tuning, uh, specifically an open E tuning. So now that essentially means that you're tuning the strings of the guitar so that if you just play the strings alone, you're going to get a full chord, a la this. Now, usually if you play a guitar in a, in a regular standard tuning, which 98% of songs in popular music are written, it's not going to sound good. But Dylan tunes the guitar to an E chord and then builds in chords uh, around that tuning and, and writes the record, it writes the entire record on them. All the New York versions are written on them. Uh, what changes is when he goes to Minnesota and he, you know, does, if you see her say hello, which is done in a standard tuning, uh, tangled up in blue is done in a standard tuning, but this song, you're going to make me lonesome when you go is, is one of the ones that is done in the open tuning. It had been said that Joni Mitchell introduced Bob to the open, to the open E tuning. Now, the only case against that is that on Freewheeling Bob Dylan, his second record, he happens to use this open tuning on I Shall Be Free, Oxford Town, <laughs> and Karina Karina. Having said that, he uses it in, in a bit of a different way, um, which, you know, if you listen to both these records, you'll see how, how they're used quite differently. But it is interesting that he does, he writes this entire record with this tuning, which creates, and, and it's a solemn tuning. I mean, here, here are the chords to, if you're going to make me lonesome when you go. Right? So that's that song. And then you take, like, um, you take the version of Idiot Wind from New York. this deep tone to it and and it's serious and it's almost sad i mean jeff can speak to like musically for the for those listeners that that are, are a bit familiar and can understand and perhaps you could try to do it in layman's terms well yes yeah, so i think there's, there's sort of one chord in particular uh that we could actually talk about that's on a lot of these songs in these uh open d tunings Hang on a bit. um and it's this. It's called. It's called a B11 chord. Uh, basically, what this is functioning as is a kind of like tense chord at the end of the lines, which is a very sort of common sort of motif in in popular music or or in just Western music. You put a sort of tense chord right at the ends of the line, and then it resolves back to the beginning. So, what's really interesting about this open tuning and the sort of B11 chord here is that it's not the traditional tense chord. Could you play like a B7? I could play it on the piano here. So, like, here's a B7. Play like a B7 to me. B7, B. Right, so that's kind of your standard, like, tense to nice resolution. This one's a little different because instead of this B7, it does a B11. So, to put it really simply, what a, B, a B11 actually amounts to is kind of like playing, like, in between an A and a B. Now, what this basically means, like people that know music know what I'm talking about, but 
if you if you don't know music theory and stuff like that, what this basically adds up to is that instead of having this kind of sharp need to res to resolve, you kind of have like this half need to resolve <laughs> and half need to do something else, and it creates this weird sense of longing that if you just kind of reflect on uh, the let's say the emotion of this song we're talking about now, uh, you're gonna make me lonesome. That weird sense of like longing to stay in a relationship, but also to resolve it, and you know it's going to end. It's that weird middle ground balance that I think the B11 chord here, musically speaking, just creates this atmosphere that is sort of like unprecedented. And that's why, despite the fact that it's short and it's simple, and um, it's sort of this uh, side relationship in the context of the the album. It's also this very special moment because it's very raw, emotionally speaking, and I think that chord is what really creates it. Huh. Play it one more time, the B11 to an E. Yeah, I mean, it's it's maybe it's 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 hard to hear without a good comparison, maybe to if you do like a B7 to an E. I, I hard, yeah. On the open tuning, I wouldn't even know yeah. how to do it. If we had the other <laughs> guitar tuned up, oh, I'd do it for you. Yeah, it's true. Right, so he plays like um, like a normal thing would be like, but this song goes more like, that's actually a pretty good representation. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but I think it actually creates a, a, a real atmosphere when all these lines kind of resolve, like. I think it does something to the way that the resolution sort of hits your ear. Um, it becomes not something that's so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like so uh, definite or like even so wanted, like in normal music when you're like, just resolve already. <laughs> you know, this one's more like, are you going to resolve or should we not? I don't know. Maybe okay. Fine. <laughs> So, oh wow! All right, now okay. That I think it just clicked for me at that point. That's all right because I because yeah. I, I read in again that book, uh, the Clinton Halen book, where he talks about that he went and visited Michael Bloomfield before he recorded Blood on the Tracks, and he played Bloomfield all of the the songs with the idea that Bloomfield might accompany with accompany him on the album. But it says Dylan insisted insisted on playing all the songs in an open tuning, which threw Bloomfield. And Bloomfield basically got so discouraged that he he didn't he didn't want to participate. And I, of course, not knowing anything about music, I was like, well, "What does that mean? How could that throw Michael Bloomfield?" But now you're understanding that, like, why why would that be so strange? I guess to someone as experienced as Michael Bloomfield, why is that unusual that somebody would do that? Uh, again, ninety eight percent of songs in popular music are written in standard tuning. I mean, okay. think about it. Jeff was asked me to play a B seven on this open tuned guitar, and I wouldn't even know where to begin. Right, and so Michael Bloomfield was like, "This is just kind of challenging, and uh, it, 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 I don't think it's simple." And perhaps Bloomfield was also like, "You know what? These songs sound great on their own. You should just throw a bass track with them. Right, you'll be set. Right, <laughs> Which right. Fun, right. I mean, very often I find that percussion can take away from a song, especially songs like this that are so solemn. And I mean, this is a heartbreak album." I think David Duchovny on Californication said this is the greatest heartbreak album of all time. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's right about that. With that, right? Yeah. Uh, and and it certainly worked on a song like Idiot Wind, but I always loved 
the uh, the New York version of that song. Um, it just seems so sad, right? And mm-hmm. and to add anything positive or gleeful or percussive about it, uh, I mean, it does add to it, right? It adds that venom. Uh, I, both versions work, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that Bob's brother said, "Hey, recut some of these songs because you know if you see her say hello." Yeah, is beautiful in both ways. I would argue that that song's actually better in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of the. I think the Minnesota Tangled Up in Blue is the classic. That I mean, as much as I like the one in New York, the one that recorded in Minnesota to me is the masterpiece. Totally, uh-huh. huh. totally. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to imagine Michael Bloomfield wailing away and at, at these songs, and it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I could sort of see that. Wow. But do you mm-hmm. think that as musicians? Uh, do you think that not that Bob Dylan suffers from uh, uh, critical raves? I mean, he's been getting them his whole career. But like, do you still think he doesn't get enough credit for being as dex- as uh, I can't think of the word as sophisticated a musician as he is? Because you you guys were explaining this whole stuff to me, and like I, this would go over my head completely. You know that, that there was this level of thought behind of just what chords even to like how to tune the chords to make it fit the song like i that stuff would never occur to me and i feel like dylan doesn't get enough credit for that yeah sure i mean i I agree with that on some level i think he evolved a lot as a as a musician as a guitar player and piano player and and stuff like that uh yeah i mean if you look at his earlier albums when he was doing more of the folk stuff and then like the rock and roll era um the music's very simple. I don't think, you know, I think the credit he gets is probably enough and he would probably agree with that himself. He was playing <laughs> simple uh, American music that came from a folk tradition. Uh, and rock and roll, I'd, you know, squeeze that into the same category too. It's simple American music originally from a sort of folk mindset. Um, and what he's doing, at, you know, at this stage in his career in the mid-70s, I think is is just slowly building upon that. Um, so sometimes... Um, you know, when you're thinking about sort of like the, let's say the complexity of a piece of music or something like that, you could think of it on a spectrum maybe as being sort of like the more naive and basic and then the sort of more sophisticated and, uh, you know, the stuff where you, you categorize stuff like, let's say, bebop, jazz and, right. and classical music and stuff like that. And I don't think he was trying to sort of, you know, change his identity, so to speak, or reinvent himself, he was still closer to that simplified end of the, the sort of songwriting, uh, musically speaking, but he was adding in things like this that I, I think, uh, that's why I, I, you know, I keep repeating this, I guess, but the album to me is sort of right at this middle ground. It's like a kind of dialectic between that naive, you know, straight out of passion, straight from the heart folk, music approach to songwriting to having a little bit more of like this worldly quality where he's like, you know, actually I've learned that there's different kinds of suffering and this suffering right here is a B11 chord. And that's, <laughs> it's not saying that he's like all of a sudden Beethoven or, you know, uh, Charlie Parker. It's just saying that, um, I've learned a little bit more about, uh, what the world is like and what life is like. And it's just a bit. And I've, I've translated that to, the music I'm making too, I've learned just a bit more. And, uh, I think that's sort of where he's at on this album. Of course, his more recent stuff is way further down the line, right? Like now he's playing stuff that sounds more like, um, stuff that wouldn't been written for like Frank Sinatra or Louis Armstrong or something. And he's really diving into the much more sophisticated end of American music, which is so cool to see. But uh, anyway, this, this album at the time, I think is right in the middle of like, just pushing himself a little bit 
Uh, and it makes sense to me that Mike Bloomfield wouldn't have wanted to play on the record. God bless Mike Bloomfield, but this isn't really his type of record. Right, you know? right. A certain style. It's like this hard rocking, you know, Chicago blues thing. And um, this was a little different, and he probably sensed that immediately. I think as a musician, when you sort of show up to a, a, a band or you show up to a certain setting uh, and you just sort of sense that it's like out of your wheelhouse, you just kind of know immediately. Like, um, <laughs> I think if I showed up to maybe like, uh, you know, someone's like classical music piano recital and they asked me to get up and do a song, I would just feel like a total putz. <laughs> And I probably should because it's just not the right setting for me, you know. But I know that if, uh, you know, if I'm at like a, a bar that's doing like acoustic music and they're like, hey, get up here. I know that's that's a setting that makes sense musically. And I, I think probably most musicians feel like that, except for maybe, you know, right. true virtuosos. And just one other thing to say it. about Dylan as a musician, <clears throat> you know, in his autobiography and Chronicles, he mentions, you know, he says, everybody likes me for my poetry and my words. But they're not giving me enough credit for my songs. And and he cites he cites there was an album an instrumental album done of my music that had no words, right? That that cites the the genius of his melody and his chord structure, right? Mm-hmm. He was writing great songs and he was writing great melodies to the extent that they could be done, you know, as an instrumental. And that's true. And as he does get older, I think. When you look at modern times, love and theft, um, and uh, a time out of mind, he he has some standard blues songs on those records, but he also has some interesting jazz chord arrangements that show that he's certainly matured in his later life. And I think that's what Jeff was referring to uh, when he was like, you know, more of like a Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra style, um, like very interesting chord arrangements that perhaps he had lifted from other songs from the past as we know that he's done um or he could have you know came up with them himself Mm -hmm. but but really interesting uh melodic arrangements that i will absolutely give him credit Mm -hmm. do i think he's a fantastic guitarist i don't think he's eric clapton or Jimi hendrix no Um, i guess it also depends on what you mean by fantastic right technically skilled no i don't think he's not technically skilled at guitar the same way as let's say eric clapton or Jimi hendrix or somebody like that but also that not for everybody sort of the what you're always looking for in a piece of art but i think that's That's true and like you take the world gone wrong album right that was like one of the first uh, acoustic records that he did in a while there's Mm -hmm. some really interesting guitar parts on there Mm -hmm. that kind of are pretty dexter dexter Dexterous, yeah. Dexterous, yeah. (laughs) I Uh, couldn't say that word either. That's why I gave up on it. I was like, what's the word I'm looking for? I'll move on to something else. (laughs) Well, I'm very verbal. So we give him credit as a musician. All right. By the way, as a pianist as well. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's amazing how much stuff he can. Yeah, I I never really thought about, other than on a just a kind of subconscious level, uh, how much the music of this particular song fits the lyrics. It, It has that kind of open, happy sort of sound to it. And it's sort of funny to me that this album has parallel A's and B sides. I mean, they, they don't line, it's not a one-to-one, but this this side one ends with this song, which is kind of, again, a case sera, sera, and then Buckets of Rain at the end of side two has the same tone, and they sort of match one another, which is this kind of each side set, ends with a kind of just less angry, less, you know, less pissed off, just more like, well... All right, I've learned, 
and now we're moving on and we're going to keep on keeping on kind of thing. And I like that. I like that it's, it's sort of both sides end that way and he sends you out, which is kind of like, okay, you know, we've been through a lot of emotions here, but this one's I'm a little bit nicer and a little bit calmer and, and said, so this is, I just never get tired of this song. And, and, you know, there are very few Dylan songs I get tired of. In fact, there really aren't any, maybe bowed in plain day or something, but like, this is one that I am just, I always pull back to i always want to hear it i never it's it's just such a beautiful kind of thing and it's a great song to listen to when you're in love or when you're not in love it just it just fits because i think everyone's been through it at some point in their lives and it's just a just a completely brilliant song so um yeah and uh, this was covered uh, actually i wanted one other thing i wanted to mention before we sign off is that other musicians um have mentioned how much they love blood on the tracks as an album keith richards has said it is his favorite dylan album uh, I think George Harrison said it was his favorite Dylan album. So a lot of people that know say this is the one. And this song was this particular song was covered by Joan Osborne on her Songs of Bob Dylan record, which she just put out last year, and I got to interview her about. It's one of the few songs. You know, there's only ten or eleven songs on that album, and this is this is one of them. And I think she does a terrific version of it. And said it's it's a song that a lot of people, a lot of musicians, you know, point to and say this is really really good. And it's just it's just a brilliant song. So uh, guys, this was. Fantastic. Is there anything else you want to say about it before we sign off? I, I guess I was just going to say that I, I uh, first of all, thank you for having me again. But also, uh, um, yeah, I think even if you stripped away the lyrics of this song and you just listened to the melody of it, there's still something here that you, it doesn't sound like anything else. And that, from a music perspective, from a musician's perspective, is a major, major deal. And I think he does deserve credit. Dylan does deserve credit for really writing something truly unique on this whole album and in this song in particular as well, it just doesn't sound like anything else. And that means a, a lot because that really means that he's, he's given something to all of us who really love this that we didn't have before. And that means a lot. Yeah. And, and you just forgot that Miley Cyrus also covered the song. Did she? I don't think I knew that. I don't know but, that she covered it. Oh, she did. Yeah. There's a, there's some Dylan cover album, which is actually great. I think it's like 30 or 40 songs of all these different artists that uh, picked a track. I think I it was the, the Chimes of Freedom record, I think it was called. Right, I remember that record. I didn't know that she, and I think I even knew that Miley Cyrus was on it, but I didn't know that she picked this one. That's interesting. Well, i got to go find that now. <laughs> I want to cool. hear that. That's interesting. In her, in her concert repertoire as well. Right. Not that I'm a big Miley Cyrus fan, but I, I read it. Hey, nothing, hey, no no, no hate for Miley Cyrus over here. That, that's great. I'm glad that she sings it in concert because Bob Dylan doesn't. You know, I think somebody should. This is a great song. People should hear it. It's beautiful. So. Well, all right. Well, guys, thank you so much. Uh, Jared, thank you again for coming back on. I always enjoy having you on. I just love the, the whole musical aspect you bring to it. And I, I really thank you for bringing Jeff along. Jeff, this was just great. I, I enjoyed having you on as well. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Happy to be back on. All right. Well, thank you, Jared. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, as always, if you want to find back episodes of our show, just go to the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and just click the shows, and you can see all the episodes of Pod Dylan. And you can talk to us on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Happy 2018, everybody. We'll be back soon, and we will see you later. Bye. been this close before never been so easy or so slow i've been shooting in the dark too long when something's not right it's wrong you're gonna make me lose when you go 
Dragon clouds so high above I've only known careless love It always has hit me from below But this time round it's more correct Right on target, so direct You're gonna make me loads when you go It's like a little song. Like, okay. I don't think of it as happy. Like it, I, don't I don't think, think so. of it yeah. as like. Doo, 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 doo. Right. I'm like. Thank you. 
Thank you.